0: Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barkers UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we look at the state of global markets and if the trouble brewing at Evergrande Group in China should worry UK investors, with Nikki Eggers, Head of Investments, Alina Lobacheva, Portfolio Manager, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. To find out about starting your investing journey with Barclays, visit barclays.co.uk forward slash investments. Hello, welcome to Word on the Street. We've got an awful lot going on at the moment. So today I'm joined by Will to cover markets, the global economy and everything else besides. And delighted that we have Alina from our investment management team to talk a little bit about China and the Evergrande story. So hi, Alina. Hi, Will. Hello, Nikki. Hi, Nikki. But first, Will, tell us what's been going on. I don't think an awful lot, other than most of us sitting in queues for petrol and such like.
1: Yeah, it's certainly been lively around the petrol stations, isn't it, Nikki? But yeah, I mean, actually, markets have woken up a little bit this week. It's the bond market and the world's central bankers are really centre center stage. It's a little bit weird to describe but but in the US bond market, or in the global bond market, actually, you're just seeing a little bit of Extra compensation added in to to yields to account for a slightly more uncertain outlook for inflation. I think that's probably part of it. But also, you know, a central bank, global central bank community that is now very visibly looking to kind of wind back some of that epic generosity that we've seen. That we've seen in this uh, in this crisis. Uh, it doesn't sound like much, but but the bond market is always the kind of eight hundred pound gorilla in the capital markets room. You know, even it snores can break windows across the proverbial street. Actually, there was a there was a famous quote about this. I'm sure you've all you've all heard it many times. But it was you know one of President Clinton's very quotable advisors. and he argued. He said, "I used to think that if there was reincarnation, words to this effect. Anyway, I I would want to come back as the president or the pope or a baseball star. But I think actually now I'd like to come back as the bond market." You can bully everyone. So, you know, and actually, what you saw with this, to, to words <laughs> you know, to that effect, what you saw in wider capital markets beyond the bond markets, so the move higher in yields was accompanied by quite a lot of action, you know, underneath the surface within stock markets. And some people have linked this kind of so called value trade where cheap stocks are trading at a kind of historically mouthwatering discount to so-called expensive stocks in spite of the fact that there's uh, you know that can't be explained by you know a very different fundamental backdrop between these two sort of groups of stocks so there's sort of all sorts of stuff going on and while that was happening there was quite a bit to watch in the U.S. political sphere too with the Democrats trying to thrash out a compromise to avoid government shutdown which it looks like they've managed to do or at least sort of you know push the, kick the can down the road a bit and also shun this, you know, this very important social spending and infrastructure bills through Congress. We're not there yet, like I say, so they're sort of, you know, they're moving negotiations back and back at the moment. It it is, I have to say, pretty tangled up in Congress at the moment, but we'll maybe report back on that a little bit more detail next week. There's obviously, like you said, plenty going on in the UK too, what with the fiasco around petrol seemingly uh, reawakening the Brexit divide. And the UK is, you know, very much at the centre of this debate about monetary policy that I just mentioned too, you know, for a load of reasons, inflation is taking longer to peak than most expected. And that's helping just a bit more doubt creep into those interest rate liftoff decisions, you know, could the Bank of England raise interest rates in November? Seems like much depends on, you know, as we talked about last week, much depends on the labour market and how effectively those um, furloughed workers, how effectively and quickly those furloughed workers are reabsorbed into jobs, either the same ones or different ones. It's it's pretty uncertain, to be honest. I mean, we'll be watching with great interest. We still think that the interest rate story is more a next year story than this year story, but 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 um, we'll see. And actually, you know, for all of that, that doesn't even mention everything going on in China. So it's it's a busy busy moment in capital markets at the moment.
0: There's certainly a lot in there, Will. And we've seen, obviously, market price action really being quite choppy, as you say. But China is the main focus of today's podcast, and there is a lot to cover. So the first thing I want to get into is the story of Evergrande itself. Alina, very glad to have you to to help us um, unpick this. Am I right in thinking this isn't just a real estate business. From everything I've read, they seem to have their fingers in many different pies. What's the story here?
2: Yes, Nikki. Well, Evergrande Group is actually a holding company with a number of underlying businesses. And some of these are actually separately listed. So it does have quite a complicated conglomerate style structure. Having said that, though, its main line of business is still property development, And primarily, it does that through its Hengda real estate segment. So property development is is actually 98% of revenues. Um, And then you're left with just 2%. And and then some of that is property management, which is obviously related to its main line of business. But the rest is just this incredibly diverse uh, mix of of businesses. And and they've also changed over the years because Evergrande has been acquiring new businesses and, and divesting as well. Um So at the moment, Evergrande owns a couple of theme parks. It actually has a tourism division. Uh, then it owns a stake in the Guangzhou Football Club together with Alibaba. And interestingly, actually, after rather large investments from Evergrande, Guangzhou became one of the top football clubs in the country. It's the only Chinese football club to win the AFC Champions League twice. And also it's the first Chinese club to participate in the FIFA World Cup. Now, obviously, you know, given Evergrande's financial issues at the moment, the fate of this football club hangs in the balance, and they'll they'll probably need a couple of new stakeholders. But anyway, back to uh, back to Evergrande's various ventures. So, aside from the things I've already mentioned, Evergrande has also dived into designing its own electric vehicles a couple of years back, but that's really at the very early stages of development at the moment. It also has a life insurance segment, if I'm not mistaken. And it's involved in a variety of health related initiatives too. Um, and these range from sort of hospital operations and health management services to investing in healthy food and drinks businesses. And, and actually, generally speaking, over the years, Evergrande has been acquiring stakes in, in other companies across uh, different sectors. So, uh, just to give a few examples, it has a rather large stake in Shengjing Bank and also quite a sizable stake in Hengteng Networks, which is basically. A streaming platform combined with a film production company, and, and this are just a few examples. I'm sure, I'm sure there are many other ventures that the company is involved in. But as you say, Nikki, uh, fingers in a lot of pies, which is all very interesting. But ultimately, it's, it's still very much a property developer at its core, in terms of its revenue stream. Yeah, quite
0: a. Uh- giddying diversity of things that you just mentioned there but if it's not a leading question what might possibly have gone wrong here it feels very clear that the market and, and and others have been worried about this company for for some time but there's been some kind of trigger that's crystallized those fears into what looks like potentially a an extinction event in in the last few weeks so so what's changed
2: Yes, that's that's a really good question. As you say, Evergrande's rising debt has been a recurring concern for those close to the company since 2010. And at that point, Evergrande started to pursue a very aggressive expansion strategy, basically buying up land across China, primarily in second and third-tier cities. So obviously, as that land bank grew and the number of development projects increased, so did the debt pile, because the way this works is the land acquisition and a lot of the development is financed by bond issuance and bank loans so so by debt basically and what the company is hoping for aside from obviously selling its developments at a profit is it's hoping that in the meantime the appreciation in the value of the land and the real estate it owns covers the borrowing costs or basically the interest it's paying on the debt so Essentially, and I'm probably oversimplifying this a little bit, but but the company, a company like Evergrande uh, with a lot of debt is dependent on the price of real estate and land going up. Now, for many years, real estate prices in China have been increasing at a decent pace, at least in cities. And over time, affordability became an area of focus for the Chinese government. At the same time, authorities in China were becoming increasingly concerned about high debt levels in the real estate sector as a whole. So, you know, there's all this kind of pressure starting to build up. And finally, in 2017, for the first time, Evergrande promises to reduce its net gearing ratio, which is basically a measure of you know how indebted the company is, from 240 percent, which is huge, mm-hmm. to 70 percent over three years. Now, bear with me for a moment here. I'm getting to the end of the story. But sort of fast forward three years. We're now in 2020. The company still hasn't met its target. Its ratio is, is, is still high at 200 percent. And then two other things happen in 2020. The property market slows because of coronavirus, partly, but it was always it was actually slowing before that as well. Plus, the Chinese regulators officially introduced caps for three different debt ratios for real estate companies. And these are known as the three red lines. And this is really, again, to try and sort of reduce debt in the in the in the wider sector. Evergrande doesn't meet any of those caps. So it begins selling properties at a discount. It sells stakes in some of the businesses it owns and kind of really pushes to bring the debt down faster. At the same time, it has other troubles within the business. It's making losses in its electric vehicles division. So it's it's issuing profit warnings. So basically, you know, by June 2021, it's actually met one of its three caps that the regulators have asked for but at that point, it's really too little too late because the creditors have become very concerned. Banks are starting to decline Evergrande's loan extensions uh, and rating agencies are starting to downgrade the company's credit rating. So the situation really begins to escalate very quickly from this point because as you can imagine, Evergrande's borrowing costs are now rising. Its access to capital is reduced and the property market is still, is still rather slow. So. Now we're in September. This year, the rating agencies uh, flag a possible default and Evergrande obviously becomes front page news. So there are obviously a number of factors that contributed to Evergrande's situation. But this really just goes to show how high debt levels can create a snowball effect very quickly when market conditions become less favorable and creditors panic. Well, that's certainly
0: a very clear articulation and really helpful. I I understand that a bit better. And when it comes to the wider sector beyond Evergrande, is there is there a sense that there are more Evergrande sort of waiting to come out of the woodwork?
2: Not, not necessarily. I mean, there are certainly, it's, it's a really, first of all, it's a really vast sector. It's a very large sector uh, in China, and there are thousands of real estate developers in the region. Around 50 are on the China Fortune Top 500 list, which is a list of basically the largest companies in China by revenue, Among these 50, you have SOEs or state-owned enterprises, and you also have public companies like Evergrande. Now, among these public companies, there are certainly some with rather high debt levels, and I think these are most at risk, I suppose. So just thinking of some of the larger ones on that list, Greenland, Sunak and RNF come to mind. Country Garden is another one, uh, although I think they're probably in a slightly better position simply because they've been able to uh, acquire part of RNFs. Property management business recently, but then there are also companies which are either partly or fully owned by the state, and these have more conservative balance sheets, generally speaking. So uh, China Overseas Land and Investment is one of those. for Properties is another. Vanke actually, which is uh, only partly owned by the state, but I believe they've they've been asked to consider buying some assets from Evergrande to just help with with their crisis. So again, while while debt is certainly high in the sector as a whole. Some companies are clearly in a better position than others. So it sounds like you've really kept your eye on the
0: ball on this. And I guess I guess, maybe a question that listeners might have in their minds, given your role in, in managing our portfolios, I take it we don't have exposure to Evergrande in our portfolios. I think I'm right in saying that.
2: Yes, yes, that's right. That just goes to show, I think, that there's no reason not to invest in, in emerging markets and in China in particular. I mean, clearly, China is one of the largest economies in the world, and it it makes sense to have some exposure in your portfolio. But but it really does pay to do your research and your due diligence and select managers that are able to limit exposure to businesses with lower quality financials and and businesses that that sort of take excessive risks. I think the progression of Evergrande's story clearly shows that there were red flags and concerns uh, early on. So as I say, from 2010, I guess prudent investors would have seen that the debt levels are just too high and the expansion plan is too aggressive. Um, So, again, uh, I think going with managers that recognize these things for your portfolio is very important. Well, that's really reassuring. So,
0: I guess the wider point, though, is to think about the wider exposures. So, Will, maybe we can bring you back in here. I guess maybe the first point to address is blowback wise. Would that be on China or the wider global economy? Could this, as some people are sort of worrying about, could this be a Lehman style moment for China?
1: I'm Probably not. I mean, I think that's the easiest way to say it. I mean, Evergrande's exposures are certainly large, complex, and and surely yet to be fully uh, understood, discerned. However, from the perspective of the world economy, Evergrande operates within a still largely closed financial system. Um, that means that, you know, the presence of foreign lenders is quite, um, from creditors, creditors is, is quite limited. Now, with regards to China specifically, you could argue that, or you would argue, I think that the authorities are sufficiently resourced and incentivized to quickly mop up immediate contagion risks. There's a load of other things to say on that particular bit as well but um, we haven't got all day and (laughs) no one needs to hear it all but actually we've written about it as you know on on linkedin so that if people are interested in knowing more about the kind of comparison with lemans and those kind of things we've written loads on it. But, you know, outside of that, you know, initial contagion, there are still, you know, nonetheless, significantly, significant and likely economically painful challenges ahead for China. So staunching contagion is one thing. However, managing the resulting kind of widespread financial distress is likely significantly more complex. You know, the question always is to what extent should stakeholders bear losses? And that's really so challenging in these situations. And the answer to that question will inform future behavior and risk risk taking amongst private actors. So you really are setting the tone, that idea of kind of moral hazard. All this while managing this kind of fascinating regulatory crackdown, a dramatic shift in terms of the energy sources from primarily coal to others, and a slowing potential growth rate. So, you know, and looming over all of that is a, is that simply massive 20th, you know, Communist Party Congress next year, where President Xi is, you know, expected to break with decades of precedent and stay on in his role. So there is really a lot going on in China at the moment.
0: And with that, a lot going on, perhaps a bit of uncertainty there. Does that in any way dent our belief that that having some exposure to China is a, is a good idea in a diversified portfolio?
1: No, no, certainly not dented at all. So, I mean, you know, we still have a very strong belief that China and Asian, you know, exposure is an important part of that diversified access to the global economy. This is where a lot of the action is at the moment. So, you know, but we are necessarily humble about what comes next. Of course, you know, what China has achieved since 1990 is. Simply unprecedented from literally zero percent in the middle class to, to around 40 percent you know hitherto undreamed of levels of poverty reduction we've discussed all this before but i mean it's a transformation of of, of real jaw-dropping note now the problem is i guess or you know this is always the case but but you know, the recipe for all this success is still hotly debated, you know, as is the right mix of policies to take the economy through to the next really very difficult stage of, of development. And remember that the next bit is really where many countries have founded before. Um, you know, that move to from middle income to, to to rich country, and there's literally only a handful of economies that have managed it in the post-war period, like Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, and a couple of others. But And I think, you know, the economy is now churning out, the Chinese economy is now churning out 8 million universities graduates a year. That's double the number in the US. You know, people can talk about the differences in quality of education or whatever, but, you know, it's still a huge number of educated people being turned out. And that alone is a powerful argument for why you want, you know, want to have some exposure in a diversified portfolio.
0: So it seems to come down to productivity again.
1: Yes, precisely, Nikki. This, this is that there is a bit of an argument about whether China's approach to this vital piece of the economic puzzle is the right one. On the one hand, China has massive and increasingly educated human capital resources, as we just talked about. That has to be enormously powerful. For instance, 40% of the graduates we just talked about, 3 million people are engineering graduates. Now, optimists will point out that the engineering degree in China are extremely narrowly focused. There's little uh, time for kind of general knowledge acquisition. It's engineering and engineering only. But you could argue that this kind of very focused concentrated education strategy misunderstands the lessons from history about productivity and industrial revolutions you know so the major breakthroughs in cotton production in the first industrial revolution for example come from a barber a clockmaker and a clergyman um, and that chimes with wider experience knowledge for knowledge sake has been really helpful in locating these breakthroughs and making uh, making the most of them it's it's you know it's part of the, the the difficulty of getting that recipe right but we shall see it's going to be fascinating to watch
0: I'm, I'm sensing some some subjects for future podcasts about what what type of what seem, <laughs> seemingly random activity might 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 be the great unlocking of the next huge productivity game. Okay, and one one area I really do want to touch on, and and it does link with China, is the climate story. We know that China has it in its power to to really change the world's ability to to reach the targets that that we know we need to if we're going to reverse the what feels like a sort of a seemingly inevitable move towards irreversible climate damage. But what should we expect with respect to how China might treat this?
1: Yeah, I mean, like you say, it's hard to overstate China's importance here. It's responsible for just under a third of global CO2 emissions. It emits more than the entire OECD, the US, Europe and the rest combined. And to be clear, like that's not portioning blame. You know, this is there's a number of things. You know, reasons for that. It's it's part of the development path. Um, unfortunately, it's part of the cost of development that we found in the past. As you become a more developed nation, you tend to sort of you know that polluting story sort of diminishes a little bit. Some also argue that you know we exported our polluting industries to uh, China and emerging markets. So you know, it's it's not a sort of not necessarily a you know a fair statistic but it's a, it's a fact and there is no solution to the climate crisis without massive and expensive commitment from china and actually you do seem to be seeing exactly that. And in fact, looking at surging energy prices in Europe at the moment, it is possible to trace some of that story back to the effect of climate-related regulatory reforms hitting China's ability to sate energy demand through its coal production. And that squeezed China's energy demand onto other areas of the energy markets, natural gas. Uh, And so you've seen this kind of, you know, this surge in electricity prices in Europe. So... It's it's fascinating stories, to be honest. But you're right. I mean, China is going to be absolutely key here to watch. There is some self-interest here, which is, I think, helpful in a way. So there is a chance, much talked about chance for China to perhaps leapfrog others in some of the sort of emerging related industries. So, you know, electric vehicles is a good example. But also... Particulate pollution in cities in China has been a big story, something that the citizens of China are extremely aware of. And it's been seen as societally, politically and economically potentially quite costly. So there is some sort of, you know, there, there's a degree of self-interest driving China, certainly, you know, but, but, but they are absolutely key to this story, as you rightly say.
0: Well, and, and clearly the climate story is going to become ever more dominant as we, as we reach November and, and the COP summit. So I'm sure we'll be coming back to the topic in, in coming weeks. So with that, Will, Alina, thank you so much. And we'll speak to you next week. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.